Hello, and welcome to Ed Infinitum, the podcast that makes school the subject of study. I'm your host, David Nuremberg. This is Season 3, Episode 1, How It All Began, Part 1, Satan, Jefferson, and Dictionaries. At long last, welcome to Season 3 of Ed Infinitum. Before we begin, I can't fail to mention that as we speak, Millions of students across the country face a school year steeped in uncertainty thanks to the COVID-19 pandemic. I did a special episode on that topic a couple of weeks ago and have every intention of interrupting my release schedule this year should major developments occur. But for now, let's try and zoom back to the long view, the wide view, of the world of public education. I struggled a lot with how to kick off this season, and so one of my listeners suggested, hey, why not talk about how and why public schools came to be to begin with? And I realized, my gosh, 30 episodes, and I never really took that up yet. So listeners, if you too have wondered how and why universal public education is even a thing in the United States and around the world, when for the span of human history prior to the last couple hundred years or so it wasn't a thing, well then, have you come to the right place. Of course, once I really sat down to plan this episode out, I realized it's actually kind of hard to go back to the beginning of American universal public education because, well, marking that beginning really depends on how you define universal and public and, well, education too. But here we go anyway. Educational experiences that we would recognize as school, i.e. one or more teachers instructing a bunch of young people and learning new knowledge or skills in a larger and more systematized way than one-on-one apprenticeships or tutorials, housed in some sort of dedicated facility. Well, we've got evidence of that going back at least as far as the 3000s BCE in ancient Egypt. But when we in America say public education, we generally are talking about a schooling experience that is not only available to, but mandatory for, all children in the population, free at the point of delivery, paid for by publicly raised funds, and I will further narrow that scope to what we would call primary and secondary education, and separate off the whole issue of college and university study. Not that there aren't public colleges and universities, but this podcast as a whole generally focuses on pre-K through 12, and this episode will be no exception. The idea, or even to some extent the practice, of this definition of public schooling didn't originate in the United States. As Season 1, Episode 13 detailed in brief, there are antecedents in Tang Dynasty China, Roman occupation-era Judea, the early centuries of Islam, and even in late-to-the-game Christian Europe of the 16th and 17th centuries, where you had people like Comenius and Martin Luther talking about how the concept of universal, publicly paid-for education for all kids would be kind of a good thing. But if we're limiting ourselves to the American context, then it's still a matter of debate about where to put the starting point. I live in the Boston area, where, among the many things we are insufferably boastful about, is the establishment of what claims the title of the first public school in the modern world, the Boston Latin School, which is still around. I've actually personally taught some BLS students in an after-school program for a couple of years. The school was established by a reverend from England named John Cotton. Cotton was a pretty famous dude in early 17th century colonial affairs, but his daughter-in-law, the poet Anne Bradstreet, is arguably more famous today. And his grandson, Reverend Cotton Mather of Salem Witch Trial fame, is definitely more infamous. Okay, John Cotton's also pretty infamous for driving public intellectual Anne Hutchinson out of the colony on charges of heresy after this big show trial of the century and forcing her to flee to the Bronx, where she and her whole family, except her youngest daughter, were murdered by Native Americans. 
But more relevant to our story today than his dedication to religious dogma is John Cotton's desire to make sure that young people in the new colony could have access to the kind of elite education in Latin, Greek, the classics, and of course Puritan religion that they could have had had they stayed back home in England. He wanted to create an American colonial Boston, a replica of a school called the Free Grammar School of Boston, England. Now, free is a bit of a tricky word here. Although the school did have a generous endowment and did sometimes educate students free of charge, the core meaning of free in this context meant open to anyone, that is, anyone who could pay the tuition. Uh, also, that generous endowment, a lot of it in the early years, came from private donations and was only supplemented by public tax dollars, so not exactly public school as we define it. The school opened on April 23rd, my birthday, in 1635, and a committee of local citizens picked a man named Philemon Pormont to be the first schoolmaster. And for the first ten years of the Boston Latin School's existence, it operated out of Pormont's house, until a building was finally constructed on, yes, School Street. The Boston Latin School focused on college preparation. The joke is that Harvard was created so Boston Latin's graduates would have somewhere to go. And its famous alums include John Hancock and Samuel Adams. Ben Franklin attended until age 10, whereupon he dropped out because his dad needed him to work full-time in his candle shop. Hmm, if only someone had discovered electricity so people didn't need to rely on candles for light. Anyway, when pressed, Boston Latin School boosters will sometimes say, well, we may not be the oldest public school, given that we did start with charging tuition, but we're the oldest school that eventually became a public school, which, well, still might not be accurate. That's contested by Roxbury Latin across the city, whose boosters are quick to point out that while Boston Latin is ten years older, those wusses closed up operations for several years just because stuff was blowing up all around them during the American Revolution, while Roxbury Latin remained open. And if you subtract that period from Boston Latin's history, then Roxbury Latin has been around and operating for more years, and is therefore older by that definition, even if not by the first-year-founded definition. Yeah, people in Boston argue about this stuff. That's why we don't get invited to a lot of parties. But anyway, Roxbury Latin never was and still isn't a public school. So does Boston Latin still claim the title? Well, not really. The oldest public school that was public since its inception is probably the Mather School in Dorchester, which is nowadays a neighborhood in Boston, but back then it was a separate town entirely. The Mather School opened in 1639, four years after Boston Latin, and was created by and named after Richard Mather, whose son, the unforgettably named Increase Mather, gotta love Puritan names, married the daughter of Boston Latin School founder John Cotton. So yes, Richard Mather is the other grandfather of the infamous Salem witch trial judge Cotton Mather. This is Massachusetts, and everything comes back to the Salem witch trials here sooner or later. Mather was also the co-author of the first book printed in the American colonies, which was, you guessed it, a book of religious psalms. Anyway, like John Cotton, Mather wanted to make sure that young people in the colonies had access to the kind of classical education they could have had back in England, so on May 20th, 1639, according to the Dorchester town record, it was recorded, quote, There shall be a yearly rent forever imposed upon Thompson's Island to be paid by every person that has property in said island, according to the proportion that any such person shall from time to time enjoy and possess there, and this toward the maintenance of a school in Dorchester, etc., etc., a lot of other tortured grammar. Uh, anyway, here we have it, folks, the origin of property taxes being levied for the purposes of funding a public school. 
from the beginning, schools weren't funded by general taxation, just taxation on property holders, because, well, they were the ones with the money. Although soon enough, town officials realized it was just too cumbersome and problematic to go around to the six score landholders on the island. Remember, this is before the internet or the postal service, so some poor tax collector person had to hoof it all over the place, knock on doors, hope someone was home, come back again if they weren't, and have to do this whole ordeal over again a few weeks later. So three years into its existence, a bunch of the landholders sold that land back to the town, which limited the number of landholders there to a convenient 10, more easily manageable to tax. Importantly, unlike Boston Latin, which was styled as a school for wealthy elites, and some make the argument that even today, being an exam school, it is, Dorchester made a public declaration in 1645 that the Mather School's schoolmaster, quote, shall equally and impartially receive and instruct, such as shall be sent and committed to him for that end, whether their parents be poor or rich, not refusing any who have right and interest in the school." Unquote. That, once you unscramble it, sure sounds like public education's mandate to me. Then the towns of Dedham and Rehoboth followed suit with similar plans in the early 1640s. But is this scattershot collection of town public schools, some of which are more public than others, really something we can call American public education? Public education wasn't universal at this point in the sense that all the colonists in Massachusetts had a right to attend. You still had to live in those towns to go to those schools. But soon the push for public education for everyone, of some sort anyway, began to come from the level of the colony's administration. One of the first, if not the first, laws defining the purpose of the American school came in 1647, and it has what is probably the all-time best name for any act of legislation ever, the Old Deluder Satan Act. This act required any town with more than 50 households to fund and operate an elementary school, or at least an elementary school teacher, who would teach all the young children the Puritan version of Christianity. If you had 100 households, then the town also needed a Latin school as well. Why, you may ask? Because, otherwise, ye old deluder Satan as the law was written, would succeed in his goal to keep men from the knowledge of the scriptures." End quote. So now, in the name of stopping Satan, not just the fortunate kids in towns with publicly funded schools had access to formal education, and not just the wealthy kids from pretty much anywhere who had access to private schools, but all children in Massachusetts, except for those in the most sparsely populated rural areas, now had free schooling. And from the very beginning, it was each town's responsibility to come up with the funding for that, as well as the design and implementation of that schooling. Oh wait, did I say every child? Silly me, I meant every white child. We're not yet in a place where free African Americans, let alone slaves, had access to public education. And as for Native Americans, well, there were semi-private, semi-state-sponsored institutions for them. Well, more likely that targeted them. Uh, these were basically assimilation factories to try and force Christianity and European customs onto Native American children, some taken unwillingly from their parents in order to do so. Dartmouth College's original charter was to use education as a means of Europeanizing Native Americans. In the end, whether these schools' approaches used the velvet glove or iron fist, the goal was still the same. Cultural brainwashing. In 1819, the Civilization Fund Act apportions $10,000 a year towards funding missionary schools for the purpose of converting Native Americans. So, yeah, I suppose that is sort of public education for Native Americans. Ick. That was done away with after 10 years, though, in favor of investing those dollars in outright displacement and genocide via the Trail of Tears. 
And it really wasn't until the 1840s that some First Nations in the U.S. began funding their own tribal schools. So, okay, back in the 1600s, it was every white child in Massachusetts that was entitled to a public education. Oh, wait, I mean every white boy child. Because as far as I was able to research, 1767 is the oldest date I can find for a public school that admitted girls. And that's 1787 for the first girls who attend a public secondary school that I could find. Incidentally, that was in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, at a school that eventually became Franklin and Marshall College. By 1850, about 44% of girls, 53% if you discounted white girls, aged 5 to 19 were enrolled in a public school somewhere in America, which at the time was only about 10% less than boys. That number just keeps on rising until it reaches contemporary levels around the late 1950s, early 1960s. Boston Latin School, that contender for the first public school in the nation, admitted its first female student in 1859, Helen McGill, whose father was a teacher there, and eventually a sub-master, basically a vice-principal. But Helen definitely didn't rest on her family connections. She went on to become the first woman to earn a PhD in the United States. Okay, but back at this stage in the 1600s, we're talking about white boys in Massachusetts. Although other states, particularly Rhode Island and New York, started following Massachusetts' lead. Also, we need to look at the different conceptions of education back then. While well-off white boys were being educated to know the classics of Greek and Latin, the curriculum in those Puritan schools for the masses, you know, the ones mandated by the old deluder Satan law, that was mostly about obedience to authority. The New England Primer, central textbook of such schools, had such instructive examples for children as, quote, even whales in the sea God's voice obey and Xerxes the Great did die, and so must you and I. And mind you, there are some very graphic illustrations accompanying the text to drive those lessons in humility and obedience home. Scattered experiments with public schooling in Europe also ran along these lines, so much that in 1692, a British parliamentarian named Robert Molesworth published a book called An Account of Denmark as it was in the year 1692, it's not exactly a thrilling read, but I'll summarize for you. Among other things, Molesworth calls out public schooling as a mechanism for autocratic governments to keep their people obedient. Quote, Enslaving the spirits of the people as preparative to that of their bodies, tis plain the education of youth on which is laid the very foundation of the public liberty, has been of late years committed to the sole management of such as make it their business to undermine it. Unquote. So, yeah, basically the 17th century version of Pink Floyd's argument in the song Another Brick in the Wall, we don't need no education, we don't need no thought control, especially from an institution that's supposed to nurture our growing sense of agency and liberty. A true education, Molesworth argued, had to be secular, divorced from the political interests of a state church. As you can tell, Molesworth was not a shy fellow about voicing his beliefs, Later in life, he publicly called for the board of directors of the corrupt South Sea Company to be, quote, tied in sacks and thrown in the River Thames, unquote. But his most famous invective came in a series of letters he co-wrote with some buddies that was collectively anthologized under the title of Cato's Letters, named after the fiery Roman orator. Now, these letters weren't just about schooling, of course, but they did use schooling as one piece of a much larger argument, which included the idea that a truly educated populace will not be obedient to a dictatorial king, that education could be used to advance people's station in life instead of just keeping them in their place, especially in the sense that a true education would lead people to see that kings only serve at the sufferance of their subjects, who have a duty to rise up if the king is being oppressive. And does any of this start to sound just a little familiar? 
Indeed, Cato's Letters was prime reading material for the likes of Thomas Paine and Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton, and when the American Revolution was over and done with, Jefferson seized upon that piece about education as inoculation against tyranny to propose, in 1779, a bill for the more general diffusion of knowledge, wherein he argues that the new nation of America should ensure that all its citizens had the education they needed to form their own political opinions, as opposed to just being spoon-fed ideology from a government or a church. Jefferson envisioned a system of public education that would be tax-funded for three years for, quote, all the free children, male and female, unquote, which their families could then extend if they had the money to pay tuition. By 1817, though, he had backed away from that idea, now only supporting free education for boys, and not just any boys, but those who would be carefully selected to separate, quote, the laboring and the learned, raking a few geniuses from the rubbish, end quote. Whoa, thanks a lot, Mr. Defender of Democracy. Here you have it, folks, the origins of tracking in public schools. Or not, as Jefferson's proposal never really got off the ground. There was opposition on many fronts, not the least of which was, ironically, that a national system of education could just as easily be turned to indoctrinary purposes, instead of being used to inoculate against tyranny. After all, that was the image in which mass schooling had been made and was being conducted until now. And these opponents argued it was better not to put that much power in the hands of a federal government that was already under fire for being stronger than many were comfortable with. And then, with a weird synthesis of the best and the worst of those two arguments, came a guy you might have heard of named Noah Webster. Webster was born in Connecticut in 1758, descended from not one but two different colonial governors, John Webster of Connecticut and William Bradford of Massachusetts. While neither of his parents were college-educated, that just wasn't common back then, even for many wealthy people like the Websters. The family still valued education. Between his mother and a church school, Noah Webster did receive one, although he didn't hold the school part in very high esteem. At one point, he actually described his teachers as, and I quote, the dregs of humanity, unquote. Yes, folks, public teacher bashing is not new. Webster eventually went on to Yale, where he complained that a liberal arts education like the one he received, quote, disqualifies a man for business, unquote. Webster emerged from his experience with formal education with the conviction that when it came to designing schooling experiences, damn it, he could do better. So he became a teacher, first in Glastonbury and then in Hartford, and by all accounts had a pretty miserable experience. He complained that the kids were unruly, the pay was too low, and actually sank into a depression. Eventually, he fled the profession to become a lawyer. The Revolutionary War messed with his plans to be a legal professional, though, and after a stint as a militia captain and co-writer with Alexander Hamilton of the Federalist Party's newsletter, Webster decided, in the grand tradition of educational thinkers frustrated with the state of schooling, to up and start his own gosh darn school. In this case, a private school in Sharon, Connecticut, for the children of wealthy, highly educated American patriots. And hey, as they say in statistics, if you let me control the sample, I can give you any results you want. So yes, the students in this school wound up succeeding wildly, and Webster loved teaching them. Webster might have lived out the rest of his days as a happy schoolmaster, if not for the fact that he was apparently tremendously unlucky in love. He fell for the wealthy, beautiful, and brainy Juliana Smith, editor of the Sharon Literary Club's magazine. But when he got up the courage to show her the essays he'd written, to say she was not impressed was, to put it mildly, Juliana actually wrote to her younger brother that Webster's, quote, reflections are as prosy as that of our horse, unquote, and that Webster himself, 
quote, in conversation was even duller than in writing, if that be possible, unquote. Ouch, dis. Juliana eventually went on to marry a future mayor of New York City. Apparently Webster never did lose his crush on her, as he published all these writings later on praising a young woman who was a totally invented character who just happened to be named Juliana, and went on to eventually name one of his children after her, so yeah. But that was not before he fell for another girl, Rebecca Party, who wound up dumping him for her ex-boyfriend, who was a major in the Continental Army. She tried to let him off easy by blaming the decision on her local clergyman, but I don't think anyone bought that. So. What does a man do when he's been totally dumped by two young women he's yearned for? Why, quit your job and write a dictionary, of course. Yes, this is the Noah Webster of Webster's dictionary fame. And we won't be talking about that, really, except insofar as the dictionary was part of this much larger megalomaniacal scheme he came up with to instill a love of country and shared national cultural identity via a shared and standardized language and spelling. We'll dive much more into the way that sort of thing works or doesn't work in a future episode this season. It's on my priority list. But to make a long dictionary short, Webster advocated for schools to be cultural and political assimilatory forces, equipping every child with a love of country, an understanding of how that country worked, a firm set of secularly defined morals, and of course, excellent spelling and vocabulary. Webster's spelling book, yes, that was the title, went on to eclipse the New England Primer as the central textbook of early public schools. Now, to be fair, Webster did not exactly see himself as a cultural assimilationist. He had strong, almost proto-Marxist beliefs that language belonged to the people and that they needed to control its definitions and its uses. And from a pedagogical standpoint, he was very much ahead of his time. He advocated a style of teaching that emphasized breaking complex problems into component parts to help students understand and not moving a student onward to a new concept until they'd mastered the one before it. These days we call that competency-based learning, and it's viewed as super controversial, and the exception to the usual rule of just keep moving forward whether you get it or not, so long as you get 60% of it or more. Prefiguring Piaget, Webster also recognized that children's capacity to learn advances through various developmental stages, and that teaching should be tailored to the stage that the children are at at any given time. Nevertheless, let's be clear, Webster is the man who said, quote, good Republicans are formed by a singular machinery in the body politic, which takes the child as soon as he can speak, checks his natural independence and passions, makes him subordinate to superior age, to the laws of the state, the town, and parochial institutions, unquote. Yeah. This was the context in which Webster advocated in the Massachusetts legislature. He did move to Amherst eventually for what he called a, quote, permanent fund for the public schools, unquote. Despite earning the moniker of America's schoolmaster, Webster's not really remembered for his influence on schools. Ironically, his dictionary, which is what he's remembered most for today, only sold about 2,500 copies in his lifetime, and Webster died in debt, most of it accrued during its creation. So it wound up falling to Webster's philosophical successors to expand the institution of large-scale American public education, and we'll find out who those successors were, and whether they advanced the control and obedience narrative Webster favored, or the encourage independent thinking and liberty narrative that Molesworth and Jefferson hoped for, in our next episode. That's all the time we have for now. Class dismissed, and we'll see you next time. I hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you did, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you found us. 
like us on our Facebook page. And if you really enjoy it, please consider visiting our website, www.ed-infinitum.com, and making a donation to keep it running. Otherwise, in the grand tradition of underfunded public schools, we'll be reliant on only what we can make from bake sales. The website is the place to go if you want to suggest a topic or send me an email for any other reason. Our theme music is Happy Schoolmaster by Mind Music ID. Thanks again for listening, and remember, every day brings us opportunities to learn something new. Still with us? Great! Here's your education fun fact for the episode. In the remote area of Los Pinos in Colombia, the rainforest is so dense that many children get to school not by bus, but by zipline. Seriously, you really need to Google some videos of this. It's out of sight. Kids at this school have no excuse at all for not finding it exciting to get up every day in the morning. Until next time, bye.